City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits on the air. It's the um, second Tuesday, second Wednesday in November. Uh, got a bit confused this week because normally the first Wednesday is also the day after Melbourne Cup Day and it's John McPherson Day and I suddenly realised that we... There was a. I thought, why have we got nothing on tomorrow when normally it's not a problem? And then I suddenly realised that it was the the date happened to be a, a rare one this year. Anyway, we've got a program today, and we're going to be talking shortly uh, to um, Helen Vandenberg, one of our regular uh, regulars, about a number of issues in, involving the latest developments on the Tullamarine toxic waste dump. And we'll talk to Helen uh, short, shortly because she has to get away about 9.30 anyway. And in the second half, because it is our energy day, as I said last week, we're going to talk to Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation about a number of issues, including uranium and the the, victory, the win recently, of course, the Nobel Peace Prize going to a, the anti-nuclear um, movement that started here in Australia. Um, but also he spoke at a conference last week about rehabilitation of mines. We've talked a few times about this and the fact that they walk away and generally leave the public purse to pick up the costs. So we'll get a catch-up on that one as well with Dave and a few other things. So, Oh, and also I did want to raise with Dave, and um, we're going to talk about the fact that uh, one of the world's leading polluters, Glencore Coal, uh, was caught up, of course, in these papers this week and... Uh, Turns out it paid point naught 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 something. I haven't bothered to work it out um, of its uh, profits in tax. But uh, just in case you're wondering, it is quite legal, quite legal and proper. So don't feel that. Andy Britt's over there pressing buttons. I'm Kevin. How are you going? Yeah, we're still here. The, the, our co-presenters are still somewhere out in the world. I know. I was excited <laughs> to see Mark. I was thinking he was back today. Uh, not here, can't no, see him. No, no, no. no. That's Hopefully, all right. I was next give week, him a maybe. big hug. Yes, well, maybe next week. Uh, just before we move on, uh, last week we got a note because we talked about uh, all the concessions that Crown Casino gets. Look, what I'll do first, though, now is actually pour the tea. Here we are, tea. We've got the, um, the sour African lime today because I'm on my own. I knew it. And I'm, as I said last time I had this, it's an acquired taste, so I'm drinking that today. Um, yeah, Merv called last week about the uh, about that, and the note said regarding Crown Casino loss compensation law. It's the Trans Pacific Partnership now, I, and I couldn't work out. But Merv rang, and it, what he what he explained what he meant, and it, it is was important. We pointed out all these concessions to Crown, including tax concessions, etc., and how. Um, how they can sue the government or get compensation from the government if it takes any steps against problem gambling or to 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 protect people from problem gambling or the sort of things the casino does to them, um, it has to pay up to two hundred million to the casino. Uh, and he pointed out the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, clauses that you know, were the same, where companies, if we took steps that they considered affected their profits, such as anti-smoking laws, which we got sued about, etc. They can sue us, um, or, we, or if you took steps up around the environment that they considered didn't let them destroy the environment or mine something or whatever. Uh, he, that, so that was the point of his of his of his call, mm. just to make that point, and I think that's it's an important one. So there you are. Uh, speaking of that, um, and before we go to Helen, speaking of that. Um, that uh, those Paradise Papers that came out this week following yeah. the Panama Papers, um, a number of people, yes, yes, a lot of people, including the, the casino man uh, James Packer was involved in it, but also Her Most Gracious Majesty, mm. Andy. Um, she uh, invested in a company that was charging people roughly, 99 point something, roughly 100% interest per annum. Seven and uh, a half billion dollars. <laughs> I thought it was million and I was like, nah. It's billion. So, in fact, what she's doing, I guess, 
is the poor are paying massive. If you're poor, you have to borrow from these people. You pay the massive thing. I mean, if 100%, if you're poor, you'd never catch up. So you just keep increasing and increasing. And these are the people who also are supposed to pay the taxes for her to live in the style to which she's accustomed. So she actually is stealing from the people who are in turn paying her. So she's getting it coming and going. Someone only just said Not during going, the week that the baby prince was the face of white privilege now. <laughs> and I think they complained about that. And, yeah. you know, That's interesting right. week for them, I imagine. Oh, we could have him expose himself and say he's got the bum of privilege or something. Yeah. I mean, the opposite about his face. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, so I, I, I said she gets it coming and going, but in fact, I suppose in her case, she gets it coming and coming, doesn't she, really? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like Nothing it. goes out, it all comes in. Um, so that was that one. And um, the other one, I just thought mentioning before we go to Helen, uh, on his wonderful trip through Asia, Donald Trump, uh, in his own modest way about his country, he he said um, he would push for freedom in the region and fair trade in meetings with other leaders. And how is he going to do that, Andy? Ooh, I don't know. You have to. Here's the quote. We dominate the sky. We dominate the sea. We dominate the land and space. No one, no dictator, no regime and no nation should underestimate ever American resolve. Every once in a while in the past they underestimated us. It was not pleasant for them, was it? Well, the mm. Vietnamese actually beat them, but let's, let's, not, uh, let's not go to the facts. Let's ignore the fact the Vietnamese beat them. And as yet, they still haven't seemed to have solved the problem in Afghanistan, Iraq or other mm-hmm. places. Anyway, um, it was not pleasant for them. As long as I am president, the servicemen and women who defend our nation will have the equipment, the resources and the funding they need to secure our homeland as the merchants of death rub their hands as the profits come pouring in. That's my bit, that last bit, by the way. To respond to our enemies quickly and decisively and when necessary to fight, to overpower and to always, always, always win, which is his philosophy, of course, isn't it? Mm. He's so, made sure the whole country's armed, hasn't he? Yes, he's, he's such a charming human being, isn't he? Um, anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. Let's uh, let's get Helen Vandenberg on the line Sounds and have a yarn about something. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Okay, Helen Vandenberg on the line. Uh, just listening to that uh, promo for Chris's program and Chris's records, um, just to, if he's listening and... Hi, Chris, and hope you're feeling a lot better because he hasn't been well lately. So let's hope hope he's okay. Yeah. Um, Helen Vandenberg on the line. Helen, um, we've talked many times about the Tullamarine toxic waste dump. We've talked about the so-called cap on the thing and all the dangers involved. You tell me now they want to pierce the cap and do some strange things. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, having told us that it was... um you know, can't be penetrated for any reason. They've now decided that they're not getting enough gas into their gas extraction system uh, and therefore they want to put another bore through the cap. And, well, we kind of exploded rather quietly in the now, room. Can I just just, just go back because it's been going on yeah. for so long. So there's a group still meeting discussing all this and trying to oh, resolve yes. it. Yes. Well, we have a it's 39... been going for about 180 years or something, hasn't it? <laughs> Feels like it. 39 hectare size, uh, 25 to 40 metre deep hole. It's not lined properly, not at the base, not in the bottom two thirds. It's leaking into the surrounding groundwater. Uh, at the base of this hole, there's a mound of water with um, toxic oils floating on it. Um, these volatilise, which means they just go up as gas through the soil and out through the cap, or some of it gets captured in the gas extraction system. Some goes travelling off with the groundwater and comes up in other places, like under residential areas. Anyhow, um, the... Um, when we called for a review of the proposed cap, um, the expert that was brought out from the US said, uh, you actually need a gas extraction plant on this. So they put in the pipes and they gathered some of the gases up and take it, burn it off, and it was going directly into air with the t- toxic chemicals that weren't destroyed. 
and we complained for four years and then they made it in um, an enclosed one and they monitor it four times a year and tell us three months afterwards there was a spike that they can't explain, which means we had toxic chemicals going out at a great rate. And uh, now they're saying there's not enough gas getting into that system and they want to increase it by sinking another bore. Well, we called them hypocrites for... Um, saying, you know, having told us at various times that nothing can touch that cap, that they can do it whenever they feel like it. Um, we are still arguing about the fact that they're relying on volatilisation um, and burning off that gas as a major destruction system when we believe that the more um, safe and better proposition is to extract the El Napple from the, uh, the oils from the bottom of the dump, no matter how slowly it goes. And that, that means there's less to volatilise, less to destroy and uh, less risk to the residents of air con pollution. However, mm. they don't seem to be particularly keen on that why do, they, why do they want to get the gas out more quickly? Do they well, I don't want it to blow up for a start, um, and neither do we. And um, they didn't explain why they thought... Um, they're kind, in one way, they're saying, well, there's less gas coming off and therefore it's harder to capture and we need more boards to do it. I don't really understand what their justification is at the moment. Haven't just got a comment. We, you know, it's always then we have to hunt for the data. So we want a better explanation of why they think they need it and we want to know um, more details. But we're not meeting again for another until April next year. This group is... the so-called Tullamarine Landfill Community Consultation Group that meets four times a year with CleanAway. And this is supposed to make the process more transparent and accountable. Well, it does make it a bit more accountable um, because we're a persistent bunch of people. I mean, for four years we said enclose it and have been told it couldn't be enclosed and we said, yes, it is, it can be done, it's done overseas. They eventually got somebody that they employed who said, oh, yeah, that's easy to do and did it. Mm. So uh, you wouldn't say that they're the most up-to-date company at all. Uh, and two or three years ago, you said you had a consultant who was going to do something on the thing. What's what's happened to that report? Um, we've that's been unfortunately that's been delayed by a year, and we're expecting it very soon. Um, it's been pretty frustrating. Waiting, what what will that show? What what's, what's, well, what's it looking are, at anyway? He's reviewing the documents that claim that it would be. Um, what is it? Two years ago. 26, no, three years ago, 26th of December in um, in 2014, there was a mighty row between CleanAway and ourselves because they said they would no longer consider removing the on apple from the dump, which is what, according to the SEPs, the, the EPA regulations they were supposed to do. We got really angry about that. Um, and we didn't agree with the reports. We didn't agree there was enough data in the reports, and we felt that anyhow, while we've said this since 2006, that we want that oil out, um, we felt that the ca capping of the dump was premature, that the oil could have been extracted then because that's when they were bringing up a lot of leachate and extracting the oil in that process. And we said continue to do that, in fact, accelerate it so that you get more oil out and take it off and get it destroyed. They said, no, putting the cap on was more important. This was after, of course, we forced its closure. Mm -hmm. So then in 2010, they capped it. Then nothing was done about um, capturing leachate for um, about 18 months. So that meant the bores dried up and that meant it was harder to get the leachate and harder to get the oil. And so we felt that that's just, but by doing that in itself, they made it more difficult to get it. And they knew all along that we believed that was the greatest threat to community health and they were not particularly interested in solving the problem. This, and when we say they, I mean EPA as well as the company. So mm. now we've got to the stage where they're claiming they're not getting enough gas. We're supposed to believe it point just like that and that they want to stick another bore in it. So we're pretty unhappy about that. And it's unfortunate that our US expert has had this delay and has not been able to produce the report that we were expecting a year ago and we're expecting to get it very soon. So, And he's reviewing the documents to see... Um, if their claim is justifiable, because we said to the EPA, we don't have to believe what CleanAway tells us all the time. And um, the EPA said, well, it is 
as a matter mm. of environmental justice, you do have a big battle and it's disproportionate power here. So we will, you choose the consultant and we'll pay for them. But we got the guy at community rates. In fact, we got him at less than the US community rates. So it's pretty generous of him to do it. Right. And you're hoping to get that report pretty shortly. Yes. Which when we'll which which stage we'll get you back on air again? Uh, but are we any? I mean, I suppose logically every day you're closer in some ways. But are we really any closer? It's been such a long battle to the solution that's required to make the whole thing safe for the community. Well, uh, our expert um, visited the site last year in September, and he just said categorically, "Well." There's no stopping that groundwater plume, is there? The groundwater's going through it, so it will continue to spread, which is what we believed anyhow. Mm. And CleanAway had been telling us it was shrinking. Yeah. And we looked at um, whether or not you could put more bores through the cap, and if natural attenuation, which means you put down particular microbes and the, the oil, well... There's two ways of interpreting the US EPA's paper on that, and, and it's theoretical because they've never done the experiments in the lab to prove it, um, that they will only work effectively on fresh oil, not on contaminated oil. Mm. Uh, and so we said, well, if that was plausible, how would you do it here? And it would require 320 um, bores to be put through the cap. And then you'd put the extra microbes down and that could accelerate it. But the point is, it's a theory. It hasn't been proven. And there wouldn't be much left of the cap, I would have thought. Well, nothing. That's not not much. (laughs) Put it mildly. But the point is, it's been known for a long time that you can extract it. And if they hadn't wasted the last 11 years, there'd be less of it in there now. And they say it'll take too long to do. And the community keeps saying, we don't care if you get a litre up a year, whatever you get up is less and less is better. Mm. On that groundwater, I heard the um, the Port Phillip Baykeeper interviewed a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the contamination from the rivers, the Yarra. He mentioned the Maribyrnong, and the Maribyrnong, of course, is ultimately where all this ends up, isn't it? Well, from Tullamarine, you've got, um, around Tullamarine, you've got Annadale Creek, uh, Mooney Ponds Creek, Steel Creek. But the point is we're a fractured basalt, which means that four and a half million years ago when the, when the volcanoes started around here and they finally stopped 8,000 years ago, um, this basalt cooled quickly, so it's fractured. So there's millions of pathways through that fractured basalt. You could not have a worse location for a dump than 20 metres from the bank of the Mooney Ponds Creek and in fractured basalt. And it's unlined. So it is a permanent problem to Victoria. And these chemicals will be reacting for at least 100 years, according to the auditor. Mm. So we have a long-term problem here and it will eventually head to the bay. And if it happened to go under the bay, it would just go out in the ocean. I mean, that's a one planet. So when it's going downhill, it's going towards the bay and out. Yeah. And whatever gets into the bay gets washed out within 14 to 16 months anyhow. That's the change between the ocean and the bay. So, we, you know, the less that can get into the groundwater, the better. It's simple. Mm. And ultimately, of course, the solution is to just stop making and producing and dumping these sort of chemicals and rubbish that are going to this sort of tip. Yeah, well, they banned PCBs back in the 1970s. And two years later, they open up the dump and say, dump all your residue PCBs in here. Right, and of course... Down in this... an unlined dump. And you can't tell me the science wasn't around then to know that they should have at least lined it. Yeah, and the fact that it's unlined is why... There's no way you can stop all that groundwater getting into those waterways, I presume. Well, that's part of it, but the EPA did a study, US EPA did a study in 1988, and they picked out a number of landfills, some that they thought would be leaking, some they thought wouldn't, and some they thought would be moderately leaking. Turned out every one of them was leaking, and more than they expected. So mm. they concluded from that, and that's in the, um, the report to the Senate committee, that all landfills inevitably leak and the older they get the more they leak so you can't you know and no one's going to dig up all the waste and move it and reline the dump and stick it back in because that'd be pretty horrible so you have to minimize you have to extract what you can 
later on they might be able to mine some of that stuff and reuse it. I don't know what would happen in the future. But this was the argument that we have always put up when another toxic dump has been proposed. You need to have above ground storage in stainless steel containers so you can monitor if the container is degrading and then... I mean, you look around at all the oil tanks we've got down at Altona above ground. We don't stick them below ground for a very good reason. We want to be able to see them. And you could have the same kind of system for waste. Yeah, and indeed, just on that argument, of course, when we do dig for oil in the oceans and things, we've had some catastrophic accidents. And uh, well, yeah, not sure you can even call them accidents. They're probably inevitable, but they happen. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 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 So, but the whole waste industry in Victoria is out of control as far as I can see because, you know, we've since 2001 bipartisan support for landfill as the least preferred option for waste. And what do we do? We have an EPA that gets funding from the landfill. The government decides to use the landfill levy for a variety of things other than what it was designed for, designed so that they can ensure we've got a, a rigorous recycling system throughout Victoria. That's not happening. Only two cities in the whole of Victoria where you can put your green waste into your bin, and I live in one of those cities, right? Now, this should have been rolled out right across Victoria by now, as better recycling facilities should have been rolled out. Where does the money on the landfill levy got? Last year, we bought nine trams, and we gave extra money to the EPA to expand and become a better regulator and a modern regulator, etc., etc. So what on earth is going on? And if the government thinks that's good cross-subsidies and that's good social policy, then they should go out and borrow money at a low rate so we can do what we're supposed to be doing about reducing waste. And they're not doing that either. They do it everywhere. There's, you know, just recently, Forest Victoria, whatever they're called, were exposed as having spent money that was supposed to save the Leadbeater's possum in trying to find alternative ways to, to accommodate the possum so they could knock its tree, knock the trees down it lives in. Um, well, and that was yeah. public money supposed to protect them. Yeah, well, I mean, if we didn't have an organisation like Environmental Justice Australia that lives off the smell of an oily rag through crowdfunding, we wouldn't even have anybody going into court representing our animals that are endangered, that would just get forgotten. I mean, there's been a wonderful Supreme Court decision on the 2nd of November where they turned around and said, no, the people who will be affected by the... Somebody wanted to put up a house and knock down some trees on a ridgeline and it was important forest for both the animals in it and, and for the forest itself. And the Supreme Court ruled that the residents who were complaining, though they weren't the immediate neighbours, had an... Had a right to protest about that. So VCAT had said they didn't have a right. They went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, yes, a group... And there were three groups and environmental justice supported them legally and and they've won their right to object. So if we don't have Environmental Justice Australia, the lawyers that defend the environment, we'd be up the creek totally. You know, and there's a wonderful tradition in Victoria of pro bono um, QCs. So, um, you know, and and if EJA is convinced and can put the argument on your behalf, you probably will get somebody who'll be generous enough to support yeah. you. Yeah. And I mean, they've just brought out a wonderful report on toxic and terminal about air pollution and the fact that our ten biggest coal um, coal fire power stations in Australia down the east coast have not been retrofitted with any of the modern um, things like scrubbers to reduce their air pollution. And yet if you look at the cost to health that that's causing, which is in fact billions of dollars, then it's cheaper to get those companies to put scrubbers in and to modernise their equipment. But the EPA stood up the other day and said, oh, no, they only have to operate according to their standards of the 1970s. We don't do that with anything else. We don't say doctors can use the 1970 standards. We don't say the road can be at the 1970 standards. And yet we had had Professor, Associate Professor Lou Irving stand up at their forum and explain that, you know, two, PM 2.5, that's the fine particulates that yeah. come from burning fossil fuels, go directly into your bloodstream. And he was showing that there's no safe level of that. Less is always better. And yet the EPA got up there and said, oh, it's, it's okay. Now, I'm going to believe the health expert. I'm not going to believe the guy from the EPA, am I? 
No, in fact, there was a news item this morning that in Delhi, in India, uh, I don't know if you heard the report or not, that the pollution is, the PM pollution is so bad. These are particulates that are, mm. get through the lungs and, and, and cause all sorts of diseases. Um, that, that they're so bad that they're advising school kids. In fact, they're closing schools, I think, so that kids can't, don't have to go out because it's so bloody bad. Yeah, well, what of the Yalong communities and the people in the Hunter? And, I mean, the other thing that showed in this report was that the air pollution in the Hunter actually comes down to the Sydney air shed. So these pollutants travel a long way. So what is the point of having an EPA that can't protect our air that we all rely on? Yeah. It's almost like the EPA's got a policy. A hole is a dump, the air is a dump, the sea is a dump, the groundwater is a dump, everything can be a dump. And I don't think that's good enough for a modern regulator that's got to act already, which fantastically is going to be reformed, that already has a precautionary principle in it to which I think they have not witnessed at all. Yeah, like Vic Roads always see a creek valley as a freeway. I mean, that's they, that's Don't how they let operate. Don't start. I'll never get that's off the radio. <laughs> You've got to go. <laughs> it is nine thirty. Yeah, have you Vic got to? Vic Roads <laughs> is killing. Vic Roads single-handedly is adding vast volumes of water, which is scouring the creeks and delivering pollutants in there. And they don't seem to have the imagination or the ability to realise they need to be getting reservoirs of stormwater so we can clean the water up to a recycle-A standard and then purple pipe the suburbs. Because if all that water is going to continue to rush to the creeks, the creeks are going to be dead. There won't be a living thing in them. And under climate change, there won't be much water in them except a sudden flash flood that comes off the roads. We won't watch anything under climate change the way we're going, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. All right, but that, that sounds like a story for another day, Helen. Oh, that that, that um, certainly does. There's always a story for another day when we talk to you. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Bye, Kev. Bye, Thanks, Andy. Helen. Take care. Thanks for Cheers. your time. See you. Bye. Okay. Um, Helen Vandenberg there, who I think anyone who, I'm not sure I introduced her at all at start other than saying it's Helen Vandenberg, but she's a well-known community activist in those northwest suburbs, lives at Nidri, and she's been involved in heaps of things. And in fact, she was the Mooney Valley Citizen of the Year one year a few years ago. Oh, she sounds well-deserving of yeah, it. Yeah, she, she's well-informed. She, Helen, and, Helen and Jos, her, her husband, they, um, they're they a wonderful team. They get out there and... Uh, and they're always, I mean, if you ring their place, they're always at meetings. You get a recorded message. Uh, they're, they're at some meeting yeah, somewhere yeah. or other. Yeah. Okay, look, we'll take a break. Um, wander back, and we're going to talk shortly to um, Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation, who's the uranium, or perhaps their anti-uranium, is the best way to put it, spokesperson, and we're going to catch up with some of those issues as well. Okay, on the line, Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation. As I said, their anti-uranium spokesperson, and uh, Dave, just uh, before we get on to issues around uranium, etc., I noticed this week a, a report came out, or Ross Garno, in fact, speaking at a conference, uh, who's well known, of course, in energy issues. Um, he, he points out that despite what the federal government keeps saying about renewable energy in South Australia, South Australia now has the cheapest electricity prices in Australia and one of the highest um, levels of renewable energy in the world. Um, what's that say about what the government's saying? Yeah, well, what it says... Good morning, Kev. What it says is, is uh, that um, their government is, is waging an, an ideological case and it's not an evidence-based one. Like, renewables are clearly the way of the future. The whole price curve has changed dramatically, as you and many listeners know. Uh, solar and wind are... Uh, in, like not just increasingly competitive, but leaving the uh, the dirty industries um, well and truly in the shade. Um, Australians love them. There's a million roofs with solar on the roof, and that number is growing. Um, and it just makes eminent sense. And it's it's right across the political and and cultural divide. You've got people who just know that it makes sense that it, to source your energy from these clean and renewable sources and it's increasingly the way it's going and so this uh this sense of demonizing renewable energy that the coalition government is doing it's uh, it is really you know um a, an increasingly desperate increasingly marginalized um attempt to hold on to the power systems of the past 
In fact, yeah, it's interesting. A bloke called Oliver Yates, and I never heard of before this, but anyway, he's called a Liberal Party veteran and former head of the government's Green Bank. Uh, he stormed out of a, a, a Liberal Party do last week um, because they were making fun of climate change. Um, and he went on to say that uh, the party's policy is going to destroy the world and it's it's backward and everything else. So suddenly we've got to agree with a, with a Liberal member of Parliament. He said if we don't address climate change and start to reduce our emissions, then it's likely that billions of families could be forced to move home unnecessarily, etc., etc. It's not a laughing matter. And the, and the party's stance was flagrantly immoral, he said. Yeah, well, spot on the money. Absolutely spot on the money. Because um, it's just absurd. And... Really, um, the the conservative parties in Australia are increasingly marginalised, not just like in, in the global context of conservative politics. Like if you look at the UK Conservative Party, and, you know, I'm not in the cheer squad, if you look at the UK Conservative Party, their policy positions on a range of energy issues, their acceptance and awareness that climate change is not some concocted left-wing stunt to destroy industry, but a reality... Their understanding of the need that, of the, to transition the economy into clean energy systems and into systems and, and actually getting the sense that climate change is a profound threat to people, to the environment and to economic systems. So uh, our, our sort of sense with conservative politicians bringing in lumps of coal to the federal parliament. Mm, which is what he objected to. Well, actually, no, he, this, in this particular case, it was a function where someone jokingly handed a piece to Scott Morrison. It was a Liberal senator, Jane Hume, at a party fundraiser, and she she presented a mock lump of brown coal to Scott Morrison and thought it was one of the jokes of the night. Yeah. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it, would be, it, it would just be boring, tragic and irrelevant if it wasn't that these are decision-makers who are actively blocking the steps that need to be taken, that many in industry want to take and that the majority of the Australian community want to take. In that case, then, I agree with uh, Mr Yates. It is, it's, it's moved from, from just boring to, like, uh, culpable and profoundly irresponsible. Well, we'll just, we'll just keep a recording of that bit where you disagree with the Liberal parliamentarian, Dave. Because it's on record. Vet, vet, veteran, veteran, veteran. Even that's different from practice and practitioner. Right. Uh, just before we move on from that pricing situation, um, you know, we still hear these arguments that uh, renewables really can't compete unless they're heavily subsidised and coal has to struggle along, etc., or fossils struggle along without any help. Um, that's not the case, is it, really? No, it's not the case at all. Like the the fossil fuel system, um, uh, uh, system from from digging to burning, uh, all the way through is heavily publicly subsidised. Massive uh, diesel fuel rebates, tax concessions, massive offsets, massive exemptions from a whole range of legal and regulatory compliance. All sorts of favours done. All sorts of public underwriting done. So to say that that is in some way a, an example of a unaided standalone free market is absolutely ludicrous um, and at the same time uh, renewables like there are there are you know offsets and concessions and and subsidies to the renewable sector that's sure but they're pretty fledgling compared to just how big and how institutional the ones for the fossil fuel section are yeah. so if you level the playing field um, you know the renewables are the ones that can stand fastest firmest in their own two feet and include you know, health costs and all those costs, of course, which oh, aren't taken into account. The costs yeah, of pollution, generally. the external costs, which are not that external, pollution costs, management of waste, uh, risk, all those things, and it, it just changes the landscape utterly. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, we found out this week that you know, we didn't, don't think we needed to be told, but Glencore page, you know, point naught, 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 whatever, could it go on forever in noughts, percent of its profits in tax, um, thanks to uh, being in little havens around the world. Yeah, extraordinary, that one. Extraordinary, that one, Kevin. Like, um, you know, the, the Paradise Papers uh, as the latest dump of, of information that confirms what you sort of know happens anyway, but it's quite startling, you know, like, Glencore, which is a massive um, corporation, um, they, uh, they, their Glencore entities in Australia had a taxable income of well over 100 million in 2014-2015. Um, 
and they paid no company tax. Mm. Well, one of the ones that we've spoken about before, a Glencore project, which is the MacArthur River mine, the big zinc mine up in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Now, that's yep. been burning and polluting. It's been polluting the sky and polluting the water uh, for years. It has had favour after favour done to it by territory and federal government. Well, including governments allowing it to redirect the river, which, Mass- was, which was critical to the local Indigenous population. Absolutely. It, it, it does not enjoy any social licence. The, the traditional owners in the area have and are continuing to run uh, a really brave, spirited and powerful, and I hope it will be ultimately successful, campaign against this project. The, the company has shown profound indifference to the environment and to the community. And on top of all of this, 2015, 2016, two years in a row, not a cracker, not even 0.00, not one cent in royalty um, to the Northern Territory Government. Mm. So, like, this is a case where there is, you know, I know one of the strong themes, city limits, is just like the the shifting of, uh, you know, uh, public... Um, you know, public monies to support uh, private profit. Well, in this case, we have a situation where there is massive public harm being done in environmental damage, in community disruption, in cultural impacts, and this company isn't even paying tax or royalty. Uh, and it's it's extremely... Uh, adept, and many companies are. And one of the interesting things with the Paradise Papers is that it refers specifically to miners and the extractive industry um, as a routine practice where there's complex deductions, there's offsets, there's large multinational companies with very labyrinthine accounting systems and, as you said earlier, multiple ports and places where they can park money. And they often have the entire chain from pit to final use of the product. So at different points in that, there's variations that are done in pricing or in servicing or in debt offset and and all that complex stuff, which works always in the favour of the company to minimise tax. Um, Glencore is extraordinary at it, and um, it is really... It really makes a mockery of those who say, oh, well, this is, you know, this is jobs and dollars and get out of the way for development because what this actually is is companies ripping off assets that they didn't make on country that they don't own and shipping it offshore. And it's a really uh, extraordinarily poor business model for Australians. It is not in our national interest. It's not in our environmental or long-term cultural interest to, to further this and then to actually pay for the privilege of being ripped off is extraordinary. Mm. Well, we know Adani has a structure in which, um, you know, even if it does go ahead in Australia, it will pay no taxes. And in fact, even its own shareholders get ripped off because the money seems to end up directly in the pockets of the Adani family. Well, look, it's really, there's a real difficulty here uh, because uh, these companies are very big. The largest extractive and resource companies are very big. And if you look at compliance and regulation, operational regulation on the ground, and then auditing and financial compliance, um, it's really difficult to track. And there's both often a lack of, of commitment and capacity of governments, local, territory, state, federal, to pursue, certainly to prosecute, um, so what happens is it's often, as, as we just heard, cheaper for a company to, you know, do the wrong thing and pay a fine and, and be fairly certain that the fine will, A, might not even be laid against them and, B, if it is, it's, uh, it'll be low. Um, so the, the, the culture of, of that regulatory framework, it's not conducive to holding companies that are both this large and oddly enough, at the same time, this nimble, it's not conducive to holding them to account. No. And, and indeed, in terms of help, uh, you probably saw a recent report from Friends of the Earth, US and Oil Change International and a group of people called Financing Climate Disaster, how export credit agencies are a boon for coal, oil and gas. And they say that from 2013 to 15. 
G20 ECAs provided 12 times as much support to fossil fuels as clean energy. They provided over $32 billion annually to support oil and gas projects, and Japan is the worst offender, followed by Korea and the US. So here we have what effectively is public money going into, uh, again, the same industry. Absolutely. And, and you know, we've got one right right in front and centre at the moment now with the NACE, the North Australian Infrastructure Facility, looking at... Uh, effectively, you know, gifting, well, a loan of, of $1 billion Australian public dollars to Adani. Um, and that's just one more example of this, what it is an almost extraordinary scale and its audacity um, set of expectations that these projects will be funded and the risk will be taken and the cost will be borne by the public. But then... A private company will issue the press release, invite a politician to cut the ribbon and a hard hat photo opportunity, and then tell us to be grateful for whatever amount of jobs um, is falls off as a result. Mm. And when you do a breakdown of the amount of public funding for those jobs, um, there are so many other jobs in so many other sectors that could be uh, funded for that, generate for that, and, and create so much more economic activity, but also social benefit. Yeah, let's move on to the nuclear situation, because just recently, and it was wonderful, the the prohibition of nuclear weapons people, um, or the anti-nuclear people, won the Nobel Peace Prize, which was wonderful. Uh, but it's been attacked. We've got, we got, we got to get the name right. If the Nobel what, what Peace it, Prize, what, it's worth it getting the name right. It's called ICANN, ICANN and, that's it. and they did. And it's the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And basically the guts of that one is that, you know, there's been people, as you say, um, taking, you know, banning the bomb and working against nuclear weapons. The thing that was ICANN's stroke of brilliance was two things. It said, let's make a legal instrument like the uh, cluster munitions and chemical and biological and landmines conventions. Let's make these uh, uh, illegal. And then the second thing was, and let's not bother about the nuclear weapon state signing up because... They won't. They're too far. They're too far gone. Let's direct this to the non-nuclear weapon states, then make it international law, and then show them for the illegal pariah states they are for possessing these indiscriminate weapons of mass destruction. So that's really good. It's progressing. There is a treaty agreed. It is the text is agreed. There's 50 nations plus that have signed it. It's on the way when when 50 ratify, and we're on the way to that. It will be international law. So it'll be international law in 2018. And then, for the first time, um, nuclear weapons will be illegal. That's an initiative that grew out of Melbourne, actually, yeah. Kevin. Yeah. Grew out of Melbourne yeah. 10 years ago, launched in the Victorian yeah. Parliament in 2007, and, and gets, it got Nobel this year, um, which is wonderful and timely when you're looking at front pages, you know, Pyongyang trading insults with Washington every second day. Um, two men with bad hair, bad egos, and, and access to bad weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really that's a really good piece of news, and look, you know, like others will say, it's, it's uh, you know unreasonable or unrealistic or this or that. But what's unrealistic is having fifteen thousand weapons of massive indiscriminate destruction in the hands, or well, in anybody's hands, but certainly in the hands of our current crop of leaders. And indeed, the the reaction has been. Um, you know, well, the usual suspect in the Herald Sun, so you don't count him. But uh, a bloke called uh, Peter Zimmerman, who's a you know, nuclear physicist and he's professor at uh, King's College London, he wrote a piece as well saying that really the best way for peace is to people to have nuclear weapons, that having nuclear weapons is a deterrent and therefore not having any uh, would be worse. Uh, yeah. Is that a logical well, argument? Well, it, it is, logic's not always a good indicator of whether a thing's sane or not. A thing can be logically, you know, sequential and hold its own water but still not be seaworthy. It's like the NRA's argument, you know, an, another person shoots another 30 people, 50 people, 72 people mm. in the US and the re- all, of, all of us go, oh my God, their gun culture is toxic, it's killing them, get rid of those guns. The NRA goes, look, we've got a new round of guns because people need guns so that they can fight yeah. bad guys with guns. Well, the bloke you talked about with the bad haircut, he, he said, in fact, luckily there was a bloke there who fired back or it would have been worse. Yeah. Yeah, so that, you know, that, that sort of sense of like if there's someone with a stick, you need a bigger stick. There's a certain logic in it, but the logic is, is perverse. And the logic in the security context that we're talking about now 
if there was ever, you know, in the in the world when, you know, we cut our teeth, Kevin, and it was like, you know, um, there was this two camps, the world was in split between two superpowers and their proxies, and each of them had the biggest stick possible and they'd march them up and down on their respective parade days. Um, well, that world's gone, you know. So if there was ever a purpose, a security purpose, a geopolitical purpose for nuclear weapons, it's gone. The US, the greatest military and economic power that has ever existed, now it's in its swan day song now, but it still is, it still is. And that was that was shocked to its core by a few blokes with Stanley knives. Like we're not talking nuclear weapons. We're so, we're, enemies are not superpower blocks. The world's more fluid. They don't wear uniforms. Um, and so the strategic purpose of nuclear weapons, if it was ever there, is gone. And they're an archaic, um, but deeply, deeply dangerous and immediately deployable threat. So uh, there's a real sense that there's an opportunity now that this ICANN and the, and the nuclear weapons ban and the Prohibition Treaty is our best way to get rid of our worst weapons. And there's there's some really interesting uh, people and players coming on board of this, and you know, like you mentioned, oh, well, you didn't mention because of your kindness to listeners, Andrew Bolts, you know, doing a bit of saber rattling and all this sort of button shining, all this sort of stuff. But if you look at some other other players, there's there's 122 nations that have agreed on this treaty. 122 nations. Is Australia one of them? <laughs> no, Australia has been actively, <laughs> tragically, actively, not just ignoring, but actively undermining. It's been a very, very negative um, uh, role played by Australia, a very negative role played by uh, Julie Bishop um, as, as Foreign Minister, and we have been um, uh, a bad deputy to America's very bad sheriff. But, you know, like other players have come on, one of the first um, nation states or entities to, to both sign and ratify was the Holy See, was the Vatican. Mm. And this, this weekend... Um, Pope Francis has convened what's shaping up as a very significant international conference in the Vatican on how to advance nuclear weapons abolition, not how to put a little box around it and maybe make sure it's only the nice ones, the ones that we like that happen. But the Pope has issued a statement saying the existence of these weapons is incompatible with the existence of life on Earth and the celebration of God's stewardship. They've got to go. Now, that's not a bad person to have in your tent. Um, like there's a lot of baggage with that, but but like what I'm saying is that there's different forces here, political forces, economic forces, a whole range of other players who are saying, look, it's not a bad idea. And in the same way that people say, oh, it could never be done again, and you can't you can't put the genie back in the bottle. It's pretty hard. But if you look at you know First World War poetry, it was all about scrabbling for the gas mask and gas boys gas. Mm. And everyone thought that's what the future of war was going to be. And it wasn't in WW2, and it wasn't since, although I'm not saying that chemical weapons haven't been used, and et cetera, et cetera, but I'm saying on that mass scale. And there, it is possible through international instruments, international norms, et cetera, to wind things back. And we have a choice now. We either actively try and wind it back, or else we just accept that it's out and then let everybody access to these because they're your choices and they're not really sustainable choices and particularly when some of the nuclear weapon states you look at a state like pakistan you know there's a lot of tensions there it could easily fracture materials could be lost etc etc and it's sort of the stuff of you know airport thriller nightmare novels but it's very real and so we need very real ways modest fair steps to get rid of a very immodest and fair income threat yeah, given, although you wouldn't know it reading our media, that yesterday was actually the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. Um, uh, there were times when um, when members of the peace movement in the Communist Party used to argue that American nuclear bombs were terrible, but Russian ones were really good. Yeah, the people's bomb. <laughs> That's right, the people's yeah. bomb. <laughs> yeah. Makes blood that's, blood that's deep as red. Yeah, yeah, right. uh, yeah like, look, the things, are, the things are a hideous weapon. You know, like any weapon's not really a great thing to have around, but a weapon that does not discriminate uh, and, and is just so massive in its impacts and so lasting. Like, a, these are intergenerational weapons, um, if, if, you know, uh, not too many of them are used. That, the best result is massive impact 
an intergenerational impact and your worst result is that it literally is an existential threat. That minutes to midnight clock, the two things that change that clock these days was set up to monitor, you know, proximity of global mm. destruction. The two things that change it are nuclear weapons and climate change. That's what the Bulletin and the Atomic Scientists say are the two existential threats. Um, and Australia is dropping the ball on addressing both, and yet there is strong civil society and community support and initiatives driven from Australia that are looking to do action in spite of our government's inaction. Yeah. Dave, we've only got a couple of minutes left. We might have to follow this up at another time, but you spoke last week at a conference about um, rehabilitation of mines, and that's a major problem because mostly the government gets left holding the bill. But um, just a quick review of that. Yeah, well, well, it's a massive issue. It's, one, it's sort of the after-the-party issue. You know, we've got 50,000 50, legacy mines in Australia, um, and there are massive problems. Now, a lot of those are old and, and from a, a different time and a different, you know, different regulatory regime, but lots of them aren't. And so there are real concerns that the culture of mining hasn't changed it's at the front end. It's all about finding and extracting promising and the photo op and then the shareholder return and then we're out of there for the next new shiny thing. And what we're saying across the board, environment organisations working with some Aboriginal organisations and trade unions, is saying that we need to take a set of steps. We need to look at rehabilitation because it's a major problem. It's it's causing significant impacts and we need to ensure that there's some real clear steps taken along the way, like progressive rehabilitation done during a mining operation, not left solely to a big job at the end, that there's time limits put on care and maintenance because that's a very convenient way to park a mine. You say, I'll put it on care and maintenance till the price picks up and then you hope everyone forgets. We need more scrutiny, and Kevin, very much so, on late mine life sales where you get a mine that's run for 35 years of a 38-year life and just in the in the last days it's sold for a song to a smaller company. And basically we need a fair income assessment of the capacity and commitment of companies to deliver on rehabilitation obligations. We need the, we need the bucks up front secured, not um, promised or, or illusionary. Um, and there's real reasons, and some smarter people or some longer-term thinking people in industry also see this. There's real reasons for industry to get serious about rehabilitation. One is social licence because the track record is appalling. It really is appalling, and they should be ashamed. And not many of them are, but a few of them are, because then they'll see that you don't get the chance to do it again. Communities look at the past experience and then say, no, we're closing the door to you in the future. So social licence. And also there's dollars in rehabilitation, because if you look at rehabilitation as part of the mining industry process, not like an owner is, oh, God, now we have to clean up part, but as part of it, there is massive amounts of jobs, employment, training, particularly a lot of Indigenous uh, employment, if people want to go there, in in rehab. And so there's reasons for industry to do the right thing. There's obligations for industry to do the right thing. And, you know, we're doing what we can to give some, a, a bit of metal and a bit of spine to all layers of government to require companies to lift their game. Okay, Dave, we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, but that's one we need to follow up on because it's, a, it's an ongoing and very serious problem. Another one for another day. <laughs> that's right, it's always one for another. We always <laughs> end up, well, uh, second interview today, we ended up saying there's another, there's another interview in there somewhere. <laughs> but okay. look, Dave, thanks for your time this morning, and you let me, got me out of a hole, actually, so thank you for coming on. Well, that's a good way with mine rehab. That's what I'm trying to do. Thanks a lot. Dave Sweeney there from the Australian Conservation Foundation, and um, thanks, Andy, for keeping us on air. Um, no, right. And, what a great um, show. I'm going to have well, fun trying well, to write the podcast we, up for sometime this. Sometime yesterday we had nothing on this program, so we didn't do too badly, I suppose. Oh, well done. And, uh, and uh, next week's housing, and we'll be talking to Housing with the Aged and other people, so there we are. Okay. So.